depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. I am Jeremy Scott. Good evening. It's so good to be with you here on this Sunday in late July. Talking about one of my favorite subjects of all time. You know, next to Bigfoot. I got to be careful what I say because I'm going to Squatch Fest this coming weekend. So that'll be my favorite subject next weekend. But really, it, it it's the UFO topic that is my favorite. And so it's going to be good to talk with Gerald Eastwood tonight, who's written a book called Beyond the Pentagon UFO Report. Very timely, of course. Here we are just over a month, actually a month to the day. The release of that report, it came out on June 25th. We did those shows that final weekend of June, talking with you, the audience, about it. And now here we are a week later. Gerald's a researcher and a writer. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree, a commercial pilot's license, and he has worked at the Pentagon. He's written a trilogy of books about the deep deep state under the pen name Muir Taylor, and of course his... Writing now, Beyond the Pentagon UFO Report, which I still have a copy of here on my desk. I'm looking at it right now as I do every day. I still can't reserve myself to what I'm going to do with it next. It's not going to go in the garbage. It's going to go on the bookshelf with all my UFO knowledge. But I think what I need to do is I need to print out a better copy of it and like put it in a three-ring binder or one of those nice fancy folders, and then it can go on the bookshelf. So right now it's just kind of sitting there reminding me that I need to do something with it. I don't think it was a nothing burger. I think there was a lot in there because there was a lot that could not be explained, and by not being able to explain, you were then leaving the possibility there. And if you can't explain it, what is it? So, Gerald, welcome to the program. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Good evening, and hello to everyone listening. Why are you interested in this topic? Well, way back when I uh, attended the uh, University of Louisville, I did take all the available astronomy courses. I was always interested in that general topic. Uh, And then uh, as a part-time pilot, I... uh, have some background in in flying and observation and uh, a number of of realms of of knowledge in the science department to to attain that level of expertise. So it has always been a subject of interest. I think it is probably the most extraordinary topic in the world. And if you follow it all the way through properly, you might learn the most deep mysteries of the universe. And you might learn a lot about your own human mind and human human being uh, existence. Have you ever had a personal encounter? Only once. I was at the top of a 5,000-foot mountain in a remote part of the United States, and uh, I was just, uh, it was, the evening was approaching. Uh, my wife was actually taking a shower. I was alone. I was out on the balcony of, the, of a condominium. Uh, just there were just a, a, a couple of condos in the middle of nowhere, actually, on this mountain, very remote. 
and uh, I was up there and I was looking and I saw a couple of silver circular objects in the distance and I watched them for about a minute and then they disappeared and then about 40 seconds later maybe a minute later two Air Force fighters flew about 150 foot I would say overhead from my location and made a made quite a quite a show of it and uh, then then they disappeared so that's that's about all I could say I saw it one time and and it was strange that the Air Force was apparently out there too do you think there's got to be something though to it the reports that the Pentagon doesn't want to necessarily come totally forward about but that our pilots have said look we know what we're seeing Right. I remember back in the 1980s and 90s, I mean, if you talk to somebody like John Lear, you know, the uh, the son of the uh, Learjet founder, he was a uh, commercial pilot, and he was either pilot or co-pilot, I think, on an airlines in the late 80s, and he had a personal UFO observation. He reported it, and he reported it to a local news crew, and it was uh, reported in the newspaper. And the very next day, he said he was called into the corporate offices of the airline and told, we're going to give you six weeks severance pay. We don't talk about things like that. So I believe uh, I believe that shield of silence has been in effect for a long, long time. I, I think it has finally lifted, especially where you've got military pilots who are reporting these encounters and you've got radar confirmation, you've got hard confirmation of what's happening. So you've got the most credible observers in the world. You've got very sophisticated military uh, radar and and electronics surveying these objects. I think the whole atmosphere has changed. And, of course, they couldn't explain 143 of the 144 objects that were observed between 2004 and 2021. So it's it's a very interesting step up in the credibility and in the disclosure of our government in terms of the UFO phenomenon. Agreed uh, with just about everything that you said there. So what are your takeaways from the report? Well, I believe there's a half a dozen observables, five or six. I, I think these themes are captured by sensors and on visuals that don't lend themselves to known platforms. Uh, I would list the five observables as being instantaneous acceleration, low levels of observability, hypersonic velocity, a lift function similar to aerodynamic objects, but far exceeding the ability, especially in terms of G-force and Mach speed, and also travel possibly across multiple dimensions because they've appeared and disappeared and merged. So you've seen all of those things happen, which is not typical of our, our type of aircraft we know on the Earth. Yeah, and these are, again, undescribed maneuverabilities from experienced pilots who you think would know what they're talking about. Right, right. Uh, Dr. Putoff remarked on the Nimitz case, which is is pretty familiar to all of us. He said the F-18s could not obtain lock with their radars because they were stealthy, but forward-looking infrared radar, FLIR, could pick them up to some degree based on their heat signatures. And he said the the advanced aerospace vehicle, which is his term for the UFO, 
appear to demonstrate advanced acceleration, aerodynamic, and propulsion capability beyond anything we knew existed on this planet. And I've known cases in France where they've been clocked at 200,000 kilometers an hour. And these pilots saw them uh, perform 90-degree uh, maneuvers that would have created in excess, well in excess of 10 Gs, 10, 12 Gs. So a human being could not uh, withstand those 90-degree uh, those fast maneuvers. Okay, so Gerald, your take of the videos that have been made public so far? The videos, okay. Uh, that's a good question. The Pentagon, I believe, confirmed three videos as being authentic. Uh, I'll just comment on one of them. The I think in 2017, Christopher Mellon of the DOD leaked the FLIR footage to the New York Times. They ran a front-page story. And at that point, the Pentagon did make a public statement. The FLIR video footage, it's real. It's unexplained. It can't be dismissed. So uh, Mr. Elizondo's program, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which existed from 2007 to 2012 with, a, about, I think, about a $22 million budget, uh, studied that as, as well as all of the other 100-plus sightings. And the FLIR video is the second of three that have been declassified. So just to go over it briefly to give you an example of how these videos work, it was taken during the 2004 Nimitz incident. It has a good chain of custody documentation, you know, documenting it. In fact, I think it's the only official footage captured by a U.S. Navy F.A. 18 Super Hornet that was present at the 2004 Nimitz incident. It was off the coast of San Diego. So it comes with chain of custody documentation because it's a product of U.S. military sensors, which means it's original, unaltered, and not computer generated. It's not artificially fabricated. Uh, FLIR is forward-looking infrared radar. So here's basically what happened. On November 14, 2004, Fighter Pilot Commander David Fravor of the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group investigated radar indications of a possible target off the coast of Southern California. He said the operator had told him that the USS Princeton, part of the strike group, had been tracking unusual aircraft for two weeks. The aircraft would appear at 80,000 feet before descending rapidly and then stopping at 20,000 feet and hovering. And then Fravor reported he saw an object, white and oval, hovering above an ocean disturbance. He estimated the object was 40 feet long. He and another pilot, Alex Dietrich, said in an interview that a total of four people, two pilots and two weapons systems officers in the back seats of the two airplanes, witnessed the object for five minutes. So Favor, Favor spiraled down to get closer to the object. When he did, the object ascended. It mirrored the trajectory of his aircraft, and then it disappeared. Then a second wave of fighters, including pilot Lieutenant Commander Chad Underwood, took off from the Nimitz to further investigate. And unlike Fravor, Underwood's fighter was equipped with an advanced infrared camera. And Underwood recorded the FLR video and coined the description Tic Tac to describe the uh, infrared image. And then, as I say, in December of 2017, the New York Times reported on the incidents and published the three videos. One was called FLIR, another one was called Gimbal, another one was called Go Fast. They were different. Uh, they were different carrier groups. But that's an example of the 
validity and credibility of, of one of the major three videos that was authenticated. Yeah, and of course, those are the videos that uh, everybody's seen on the television that were prompt up there as being like new when they had kind of already been out there uh, at the time that they were shown to the people. But at least they they were getting out there. Um, I guess we'll see if there are more of these videos to come. So tell us about the premise of your book, please. Okay, uh, good question. The premise of my book is is this. Are these series of events that we delve into, are they uh, the true story? Or are they possibly partly a cover-up of the true story? In other words, the entire UFO question, which includes abductions, alien government cooperation, and all the rest... While apparently true, is this ultimately a deception? Are these objects, I'm asking questions, in other words, are these objects extraterrestrial? Are they some form, or maybe they're some form of time travel? Could they be spiritual entities? Or are they extra-dimensional objects from a fourth dimension? And as I say in the book, you make the decision. I cover 20 different major topics and 27 major high-concept sightings. But the bottom line is they are real, and the government cannot explain them do you come to some sort of conclusion after looking into all of those variety of events i do by my book the the printed book on amazon is 170 pages in length the, the ebook is is the equivalent amount uh beyond the uh beyond the pentagon ufo report by gerald eastwood so as you know the the little 9 13 page uh, document they released a month ago is very light uh so, but my book covers topics that 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 are not even touched upon by by the rather light report a month ago. It, it covers how much do presidents know UFOs and black ops, JFK and the CIA's UFO files, recoveries, bodies, key takeaways, alien encounters from other major countries such as Russia, uh, the Pentagon kill shot scenario, and I cover a lot of really high-concept cases of the close encounters of third kind and fourth kind. In other words, what you looked at there, what you looked at in the rather light report a month ago issued by the Pentagon, that was, you know, close encounters of the of the first kind. But I think you have to go way beyond that to really understand these entities. And then I think there's three or four possible conclusions you can reach. My personal conclusion is the same as that of, you've probably heard of Dr. Greer, of the documentary Unacknowledged. He was a uh, emergency room physician that d- decided to quit medicine and go into this full time. And I heard him say the other day uh, in one of his CE5 shows or documentaries, and, and CE5 means close encounter of the fifth kind. Now they're taking it one level up. He, he has a, a program of, of uh, I know this sounds unusual, but a program of, of, of meditation or various uh, mind sciences that some of his people follow. And uh, after doing this type of meditation for 30 to 60 minutes, sometimes they'll go outside in the next few hours. They'll see all kinds of interesting otherworldly situations. So he, he takes it well beyond anybody else I know, but he's of the opinion 
that these are not people from Andromeda, in other words, two and a half million light years away, another galaxy, because so many of these occur almost simultaneously to his CE5 experiences. How could these people travel 2.5 million light years and just happen to be at the right place at the right time? So his conclusion is, and and I think Jacques Vallée, who's a, a famous old-time researcher, uh, he has the same conclusion. I believe they are more than likely intradimensional from another dimension and not from another galaxy because of physical and physics limitations on on speed of light flight. Interdimensional. Uh, so that would mean exactly what, again, in your opinion? Well, in other words, most a lot of physicists, a lot of physicists, a lot of people in hyperdimensional physics believe that there are up to 24 different dimensions. Um, let me give you a little uh, little background on how strange this whole field is, and I don't know if you probably have heard some of this, maybe not all of it. But, you know, Robert Bigelow was was part of this um, ATIP report with Louis Elizondo. His company was a contractor that uh, did documentation on the report that you have in your hands. Well, actually, you're not going to see much of what he was involved in in that report. But the classified report, which was probably 70 to 100 pages, that was delivered to specified members of Congress and the Senate. That's where you're going to see more impact there. But let me give you a little background on Robert and uh, his background. And you'll find this being extremely interesting, I think. He uh, He's a fellow who's worth seven $800 million. He uh, owns the hotel chain Budget Suites of America. But more important than that, he's the founder of Bigelow Aerospace. And his people have expertise in such things as hyperdimensional physics. And he was hired by the Pentagon, or the, initially he was hired by the DEA going way back uh, to do studies at a ranch of his out in uh, Utah. You may have heard of it. Have you by chance heard of uh, Skinwalker Ranch? The Skinwalker Ranch. Ranch, oh yes. Okay, good, good. And most of your, your listeners probably are familiar with it. And just to give you an example of what an esoteric um, group of people this is and, and what unusual things seem to follow them, I've got one of Chris's reports. This is uh, Chris Marks. He wrote a number of reports while he was at the ranch, some as frequently as every day. And usually one copy of each report went out to his sponsor in the Pentagon, one copy to Bigelow. And then he CC'd a lot of these reports to himself. I've got one or two pages of uh, synopses of some of these reports. And this is the kind of thing that your listeners may be interested in if they have a minute or two. This is uh, These are the, the prototype, typical examples of the paranormal type of phenomena that have been observed at Skinwalker Ranch. Here's one of his notes. One of his notes says, one night, apparitions, they had game cameras on the property. One captured images of a transparent type of thing, including images of a human shape in 1860s garb. And then he said there were very unusual uh, smells, often the smell of tobacco as if from a pipe, often the smell of sulfur, photographic images. At one stage, I think he set up a camera and took about a thousand images in black and white. 
And in some photographs, there were light spots which weren't caused by dust. And in some images, there was a transparent human-like silhouette. One night, when Chris was patrolling the west gate of this ranch with his dogs, uh, he was walking past, it was late one afternoon, walking past Homestead 2. He said he had a strong sense of being watched. Up on the mesa, he saw a person. It was just after sunset. He was looking in Chris's direction, facing southwards. Chris thought it was a trespasser. He called out to the man, but the man didn't respond. Chris could see this person's head, legs, and arms, but not the face. Now, the mesa runs east and west, and the person then turned eastwards and started bending at the waist with his arms straight out. He fell forward. As he touched the ground, he turned into a wolf. This animal then walked behind a rock formation and was lost to view. Now, there was an approaching electrical storm, so Chris returned to the ranch and reported the incident up the chain of command. So the next day, they took photographs, they measured tracks, they took DNA scrapings, they collected soil samples, and these went off for analysis. Two veterinarians responded that the tracks were most likely those of a wolf. Chris never did hear the results of any of the other tests. So these are some of the types of incidents uh, in the, the paranormal field that have occurred uh, and that uh, Robert Bigelow is, is, is quite um, diligent about investigating and that seemed to occur with a high rate of frequency at his ranch. Now, he doesn't own the ranch anymore, but he owned it from the late 90s to 2016. That's called Skinwalker Ranch, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it. And again, he was, believe it or not, uh, contracted uh, by the DEA to do research on the ranch, and then later he became part yeah. of the ATIP study with Luis Elizondo. So yeah. these are the, the, the groups we're dealing with. And now it is owned by a gentleman by the name of Brandon Fugel who purchased that property from Bigelow. Um, Mr. Fugel is involved in real estate and has purchased the property and is part of a new series on the History Channel that will be promoting that series. Jeremy Corbell also did a in-depth documentary about the Skinwalker Ranch right before it changed hands from Mr. Bigelow to Mr. Fugel. There's just a little bit of background for the audience in uh, case they're interested in that. So what is all behind this, Gerald? What's at work here? What's at play here? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Uh, what what do we have happening here? Um, I, I think the power players of the Pentagon have known about these matters for a long time. I think if you go way back... I think if you go way back to, for example, Roswell, um, everybody knows about that, so I'm not going to go into it in detail. But I do have in front of me a copy of the sealed affidavit of Walter G. Hout. And Mr. Hout passed away, I believe, in 2002, something in that range. And a week or two after he passed away, this sealed affidavit was released by his family. And in this sealed affidavit, he was the he was the public information officer at the Roswell Army Air Base in Roswell, New Mexico. And uh, it's about a two-page uh, affidavit. But in it, he does indicate that he did observe uh, at a warehouse uh, in secret... He observed uh, both the material that these craft were made of, and he observed bodies. And so he, in other words, he made a deathbed confession. 
And he also said there were actually two crash sites. And the reason for the multiple press releases were to create disinformation. He said more debris from the craft had fallen on the second crash site. And uh, he said there was a cleanup operation. And uh, they erased all signs that anything unusual occurred. And the technology was sent to Wright-Patterson, and he said the bodies were sent to Area 51. And uh, he said the craft itself was metallic, egg-shaped, 15 feet in length, 6 feet wide. And he saw two bodies on the floor partially covered by a tarpaulin. So, uh, and another individual, a major player, uh, lieutenant colonel from that base, as you know, has also come forward at a much later point in his life and also indicated basically the same thing. So this all leads us to to Area 51 for a moment and a, a fellow by the name of Bob Lazar. And we all know about him, so I'm not going to say too much about him. Um, but just to give you a quick briefing in case your people, a few of your people have not heard too much about him, he uh, claimed that he joined the uh, the uh, Area 51 program in 1988 and 89, and he reversed engineered extraterrestrial technology at a secret site he called S4. And then what happened was in 1989, he was good friends with John Lear, who was a, a commercial pilot, and uh, he said he took John and a good friend of his, Gene Huff, and he took his wife. On three different occasions in early 1989 to the outside perimeter of Area 51 where he knew they were going to run tests on an extraterrestrial craft. And they had a Geiger counter with them and they had video equipment. And they indicated that um, what happened was John Lear actually, they, they filmed him in a video and he said, he said, just as Mr. Lazar had so indicated, this craft rose up from the base, and they were able to uh, observe it uh, right on schedule. And on the third trip there, they were discovered and they were detained both by internal security and Air Force security as they uh, left the facility. Uh, Bob Lazar was taken to an Air Force base and uh, you might call it debriefed, and uh, John Lear was released. And uh, he said he later became pretty good friends with the deputy sheriff that released him. But um, in any case, so the big question is, was he really a physicist at Los Alamos? And then was he transferred to Area 51? Well, what happened was a CBS reporter, uh, KLAS, I think, uh, found him and researched it, was a good investigative reporter, and they found that he was listed in a telephone directory of the lab, and he was also in the local newspaper of the lab. And he also passed a polygraph test. So he passed a polygraph. He's telling the truth. My only thought on this is this. Was he set up for a short time in Area 51? Had they psychologically profiled him? Did they know he was eventually going to talk? In other words, let him talk. We, the government, or the people that run S4 and Area 51, will then discredit him, and no one will ever believe anything from that point. So that's one possible solution to this enigma, that maybe the man was set up, and uh, maybe they figured that uh, that would add to their own uh, you know, credibility that nothing is really happening there. 
So I think Area 51 tells us a lot. I think the fact that it exists, I know it was used for many different purposes. It was used for, uh, you know, testing of the SR-71, of the U-2 and all that. But I also have a friend who was a cryptographer. Um, and there's actually he actually did a video right before he passed away. And... He um, had a, a crypto clearance, top secret clearance, and he and a partner of his uh, were approached in Washington, D.C. and asked if they wanted to transfer to a black ops program. I don't know if it was sponsored by the DIA or the CIA or the Pentagon or who. I don't think he ever said. But he transferred to this program, and he said at the time of this program, this was nothing like Project Blue Book. This was, this was a top-secret military review, and he had contacts in the military around the world that he could call to get professional you know, engineering reviews and everything else of, of real cases, uh, not the kind that, uh, that they want to explain away, but real cases. And his results were never made public. His reports, I think, went right to Fort Meade or one of those, uh, or Fort Belvoir or whatever. So anyway, he said that during his tenure in this black ops project, um, it turned out that President Eisenhower, this was in the 1950s, had requested information from Area 51. And the, the response through channels, the generals out there said, well, you don't have need to know, so we, we can't reveal anything to you. Sorry. So he said Eisenhower became very upset. And he told them, him and his partner, to go out to Area 51. And uh, he said to tell them when he, they were out there that if, if information was not released and they were not given a complete briefing, that he would uh, have the first army invade the area and he would take it over himself. So they went out there and they got a tour of Area 51. They uh, looked at the, I think the SR-71, the Blackbird was under development at that time. They got a, you know, a tourist uh, tour of that. And then they took them to S-4. Now that's an area about 20 minutes from Area 51. And he said at S-4, they actually looked in a hangar and they saw what they believed was a very large craft that did not make sense as a U.S. aircraft. It looked like nothing that we ever had. And they were told that it was not of this world. And they were also told that they were in process of examining bodies and interviewing one live alien in the 1950s that had survived a recent crash. And he was shown pictures photographs of this um, uh, extraterrestrial being or whatever. So they actually showed him everything. And he went back to Washington, D.C. with his partner, and they met. I didn't mean the White House. They met in a uh, uh, sort of an executive uh, branch of the, uh, of the government there. But in the office was uh, Eisenhower. And Richard Nixon is vice president. And also, he said, it was to their surprise, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, was there. And they told him exactly what they saw. And he said, President Eisenhower was totally shocked. And he said, well, Eisenhower speaking, he said, well, 
this has to be compartmentalized. This can never be revealed to the American public. So that was the reaction of Eisenhower. Uh, and I think that has been more or less the uh, policy, you know, in terms of um, debriefing or not debriefing U.S. presidents ever since. I think Kennedy tried to get a lot of information, uh, especially right before November of 63. What he wanted to do, not only did he want to dismantle the CIA, but he wanted to share information with Khrushchev about these UFOs because I think he was afraid that with so many of these coming over the uh, the North Pole that we could easily confuse them for Soviet aircraft and accidentally start a third world war. For whatever reason, he wanted to declassify the CIA and then the DIA uh, program, the research program that they were conducting in, in terms of black ops on the UFO phenomenon, and he wanted to turn this information over to Russia. And uh, about 10 days later, it was November 22nd, and, uh, and that was it, and nothing ever came of it. But um, I think Kennedy knew a lot, and I think after Kennedy, I don't believe the presidents have been briefed to any major extent. I heard Reagan got a, a one-hour briefing eight days after he became president, and then an eight-hour briefing a, a few weeks later. Um, I've heard Jimmy Carter uh, ask for a, a, an extensive briefing, and he was told he didn't have need to know. Because, you know, as a president, you're just a temporary employee, and, and you really don't have need to know. So, uh, and I heard the same about uh, Bill Clinton. I think Mrs. Clinton said in a uh, public interview that, that Bill had asked for a lot of information and had received almost nothing. So I think that's what goes on. I think it's uh, I think it's classified need to know. In other words, if you don't have a top secret clearance and you don't have one of the 25 levels of top secret crypto over top secret, and you don't have need to know, they're just not going to brief you to any major extent. Now, one interesting thing I noticed recently was I heard Donald Trump Jr. talking with Donald Trump, a very brief interview, and he said Donald Trump Jr. said to to Trump, he said, well. Uh, what about Roswell? Do you know anything about it? And Donald Trump answered. He said, yes. He said, it's very, very interesting. But he said, I can't speak about it. So that's that's the extent of this cover up right now that we're that we're in. They, they released some some rather light cases uh, in this Pentagon UFO report that are close encounters of the first kind. But when it comes to anything beyond that, uh, there's still not any significant disclosure. I think, though, that if you were to dig into what was released, you would come to the conclusion, I think most people would come to the conclusion that the amount of reluctance of them to come forward and say, look, we we simply just do not have an answer here. Um, they, 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 they try to say it every other way except... We can't explain. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think they themselves are in somewhat of a circle of confusion. Uh, you look at the Rendlesham Forest incident in uh, England when strange lights came to the uh, attention of the servicemen at RAF Woodbridge in England. 
and and they saw a very interesting case. If you don't mind, I'll just cover it for two minutes because it shows another alternate theory, which I think some people believe. That's a Britain's saw, Roswell. That's Britain's Roswell, absolutely. And, uh, and believe it or not, they did Britain itself, who is normally transparent, is a government. They did cover this up for a while, and finally it came out in Freedom of Information Act, and now it's all public knowledge. But what happened was they saw a craft of unknown identity, bright lights, triangular black object, glassy surface, lights glowing blue and red, no landing gear, no exhaust, no windows. But one of the soldiers saw symbols, perhaps a government insignia, what, whatever. However, upon close inspection, the symbols looked like cryptic, cryptic designs or hieroglyphs. And they said static electricity surrounded the object. The soldiers felt like time was slowing down. Afterwards, they discovered their watches were incorrect. The experience seemed to last two minutes, but, but two hours had passed. And right before it ended, Jim Penniston placed his hand on the strange symbols on the craft. And when he did that, he was engulfed in a bright light. Then the craft glowed and vanished almost instantly. So the next day... Uh, Penniston began to see images in his mind of thousands of binary numbers. He wrote them down in a notebook. And he went on to write a book, uh, Encounter in Brindlesham Forest. And years afterwards, he appeared on the History Channel, uh, Ancient Aliens. He spoke of his notebooks of ones and zeros. And he enlisted the help of a cryptographer and discovered that the numbers contained an extraordinary message. Uh, quote, origin year 8,100. Coordinates to locations around the world, Caracol, Belize, Sedona, Arizona, the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Nazca Lines in Peru, the Portara at the Temple of Apollo in Nexus, Greek, Greece, and a purported location of a mysterious phantom island, High Brazil. Now, he does not believe the craft was extraterrestrial. He believes it contains a message from the future, time travelers. So that, that's one theory. Of course, there's the extraterrestrial theory, there's time travelers, there's interdimensional, uh, and there's many others uh, that are subdivisions of these groups. So um, there, I don't know, just, just for entertainment, let me relate one other brief case, which is, is really bizarre, but it, it, it might give us something to think about. Uh, Dr. Herbert Hopkins was a, a physician. He was a UFO investigator, and he was visited by men in 1976, and he had an amazing experience in Norway, Maine. Uh, it involved two workers who spotted an unusual flying object. They approached it, and they were taken in by a blazing white light. They passed out. When they awoke, they were uh, a mile down the road. Hours had passed, no recall. They approached Dr. Hopkins. He hypnotized them. And it turned out the missing time was what's called an alien abduction experience. So anyway, later that night, he was alone in his home with his wife and his children gone. He received a call from a man he didn't know that identified himself as a researcher for the New Jersey UFO Research Organization. He asked to speak to him in person. Dr. Hopkins said, well, here's the address of my house. Immediately after the call, minutes later, Hopkins stepped out of his house. He turned on a light. A strange man was approaching him. No car in the vicinity. He was wearing a dark black suit that looked like it had never been worn before. He had a black Hamburg hat. And as he removed the hat, he had a chalky white face. He said the man had no hair, not even eyebrows. His lips were bright red, and he had a strange voice that was inflected. So he and the man discussed the details of the Norway case. And at the end of the conversation, 
This man's tone became rather menacing. He gave Dr. Hopkins a metal coin and asked him to watch it carefully. The coin began to blur and then totally disappeared. The man told Hopkins, neither you nor anyone else on this planet will ever see that coin again. We can do the same with your heart. Then he told the doctor to stop all research on the Norway case and to destroy his records. At this point, the doctor reported the man's speech started to slow down like a tape recorder. And the man said he was, quote, running low on battery. He must leave. He staggered out of the house. He walked towards a bright blue light that had appeared down the street. As he approached it, it dis he disappeared. And Dr. Hopkins was so frightened, he never worked on that particular case again. So the more we get into these cases, uh, sometimes the, uh, the more options and, and uh, possibilities greet us that, as to what the source, true source of these uh, phenomenon are what do you make about some of the wacky explanations that have been used to explain away or deflect some of the attention off some of these classic sightings like weather balloons and whatnot right well the, the weather balloon was was it was a typical countermeasure you might say of the roswell sighting and it made no sense i mean there you've got uh what the only atomic uh, bomber group in in the world the elite and and you mean to tell us the american public that that they the 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 elite investigators of that um, unit can't tell the difference between a weather balloon and uh, an aircraft or an extraterrestrial craft doesn't make sense so as you say what happened is and and what i think dr j allen hynek said later about project blue book and the projects he was involved in he said he said when he was retired, fully retired, and away from it all, he did an interview, and he said, you know, he said that was what the government had back then as a modus operandi. He said if, if a case was fantastic and it could not be explained, he said generally the public wouldn't even find out about it. But if it could be explained easily, we'd write an extensive report about it, and it would look like we we're explaining 90% of the cases but that's because we were withholding a good portion of them. And I think a lot of the American people, and in my opinion, only one out of ten people uh, issues a UFO phenomenon report that, that observes one because I, I don't think they trust the government. I simply think it's a lack of trust. I don't think that we'll really ever get over that either. But should we make something of the fact that our government cannot explain them or should we believe that they really can't explain them? They just don't want to tell us they can. Yeah. In other words, what are we not, <clears throat> what are we not being told? Well, I would say about UFOs, everything. I think very little is released. Uh, I know Dr. Greer was contacted by the Intel community and he gave a three hour briefing to the uh, head of the CIA in the uh, 1990s. And later, the head of the CIA issued a letter saying, we don't know Dr. Greer, we never met him. Fortunately, he did have a letter actually requesting his presence at a meeting there. So that, that's what's happening. So the, it leaves the public to do its own research and critical thinking. And um, so, you know, the, all of these... Uh, these lead you've even got uh, remote viewers like like ed dames and his team they've they've tapped into the fantastic the possible future of the earth i cover that in my uh in my book but i i 
due to limited time, I think it, it's better not to discuss that. But I do have one fantastic case that I'd like to briefly review, which is, I don't know if it's too well known or not. Which one? I think it is. Uh, it's the, I call it the NSA DIA encounter. Uh, have you heard of Dr. Ray Boucher by chance? He, this might want be a new one for me. Go ahead, Gerald. Okay, good, good. Well, I can vouch for Dr. Ray Boucher. He has a doctorate in divinity. Uh, let me just explain a little bit about him. Uh, Ray Boucher, and he's got a great website, too. He's been involved in the study of unexplained phenomena since the late 60s. He was the Nebraska State Director for the Mutual UFO Network. And this case might be one of the keys to everything. I don't know. May, may not be. But we'll, it's, it's extraordinary. And I've covered cases of the extraordinary nature of this type in my book, which might help people to, to think through a, a solution with their intuition and logic. But anyway, Boucher was retained by the University of Nebraska as a consultant to organize, host, and present research papers at major international conferences. He knows the UFO business. He is a doctor of theology from St. Paul Theological College. Anyway, here's the story. Dr. Boucher was approached and met on Monday November 25th, 1991, with two men who identified themselves as being associated with the NSA in Fort Meade, National Security Agency, no such agency, and the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, in Washington, D.C. And the DIA runs a lot of CIA black ops programs. Now, he was told there were various gruesome, sudden, and unexplained deaths in a uh, what's called a remote viewing pr program. Uh, in fact, Ray said that his sources personally showed him graphic photos of three of the dead. And this is during a, an experiment. These people are, are involved in a scientific experiment. He was shown photographs of three dead people in their late 20s and 30s. Uh, the men were in their 30s. There was a woman in her late 20s. They looked like they were in something like dentist chairs. They were hooked up to EKG machines because, again, they were part of a scientific study. They died suddenly each of them simultaneously during an experiment, a black operation study. They each died a bizarre, strange death. I think one died of remote suffocation, one died of a remote uh, cerebral hemorrhage, uh, hemorrhage, and I, the third one was also a very unusual, uh, uh, very unusual death. Dr. Boucher was shown 12 photographs of the three dead from different angles. He was told by the two men who were physicists, they identified themselves as physicists from the NSA and the DIA, who were conducting the experiment, they were told the experiment had gone, quote, over its head, and they didn't understand what transpired. So they, the, the two government people, decided to contact him for guidance and opinions as to whether this program should be continued. So I'm going to read to you right now from a memo he wrote uh, to uh, all interested researchers. The, the following is an edited version of material given to me in 1991, early 1992, by two scientists who claimed to be working in weapons research and development for the Department of Defense. Both meetings took place in the coffee shop and lobby of the Cornhusker Hotel here in Lincoln. The first meeting was on Monday, November 25, 1991. I received the call arranging the meeting on the previous Thursday. The second face-to-face -face meeting was at the Cornhusker Hotel on Friday, January 24, 1992. All of the subsequent contact was by telephone, with the exception of a short conversation in June of 1994. And uh, he said, 
divulging this information was the result of a moral dilemma when these two individuals became alarmed at the course of their research efforts into psychotronic weapons was taking under the, under the direction of their unnamed superiors. They described an obsessive effort by, by their, quote, superiors to contact and attempt to control what they referred to as, quote, non-human intelligences, NHI, and to harness these NHI for military and intelligence uses. Now, here's his, I'm just reading from his statement. He said, the efforts had progressed well past attempts at practical applications of David Bohm's theories, who was a theoretical physicist, and had grown to encompass the use of, according to their statements, quote, ritual magic along the lines of that espoused by Alastair Crowley. Now, just to my own comments on that before I continue, Alastair Crowley was probably the major occult figure of the last century. He was born in London, and he lived most of his life in Paris and Mexico. He had a small temple, I think, in Southern California, and a lot of the early members of NASA attended his church. He had his own religion, but he was a major occultist. Uh, he practiced black, black magic, just to let people know who he is. Anyway, to continue... These gentlemen, I'm reading from Ray's statement, these gentlemen stated their concerns that even when they were apparently able to harness or channel these forces or abilities for ostensibly, quote, good uses, the force would turn. And ultimately, all of these subjects involved suffered varying degrees of negative effects from contact with these forces. So, you know, at the higher levels of, of major corporations around the world, as well as major governments, I think, and I, I read a book by a Ph.D. once on this, that if you, if you want to find sociopaths, you go to the top levels of certain very large organizations. And apparently their superiors were these type of people, and they went beyond reasonable limits and, and did this type of research. Uh, anyway, uh, Dr. Boucher said contact has continued on a limited basis with no new information of significance forthcoming. So there you have it. Three individuals dead and in an experiment gone wrong. And if you were to pursue it, you would find what? Maybe closed doors and denial. Nobody can pursue this because it, it's impossible. These, I mean, these people, maybe they, I think their names were Mr. Valley and Mr. Baines. I mean, these names probably don't even exist. They're not real names. But, but Dr. Boucher's credentials are impeccable. So uh, you, you've, got, you've got some top-level remote viewing programs going on, or that have gone on anyway, at least in the past, and uh, have led to some tragic results. And apparently we're dealing with some, some major forces here that have major powers. So that's where we are. Gerald, I appreciate you coming on the program tonight. Um, tell us quickly before you go about the connection to JFK. Oh, okay. Well, it's very interesting. My my uh, stepfather, John Stringer, if you want to Google John Stringer, S-T-R-I-N-G-E-R, comma, JFK, comma, conspiracy, you'll get about 60 hits on Google. He took the autopsy photos at Bethesda Naval Hospital of, uh, of the president and uh, on the night of November 22nd, 1963. So um, it's very interesting. He was a... Um, he was a photographer. He was the chief photographer of the uh, of the Navy, 
And uh, he also took, uh, I think, what was his name, uh, Dr. Uh, Forrestal, James Forrestal, who was a member of MJ-12. He took his uh, autopsy photos after he allegedly jumped out of a 14th floor window in the early 1950s. So, and one of his uh, assistants, Bruce Pitzer, I won't say too much about John, uh, but I can tell you a little bit about one of his assistants, which is a very bizarre but true story, which is well documented and which very few people even know about. Uh, Pitzer, Bill Pitzer, rather, was a the head, worked with John, he was the head of the audiovisual department at Bethesda Naval Hospital, and he, he was called in the hospital that same night that Kennedy's body was brought in. But instead of taking still photographs, color photographs of the uh, of the x-rays and the sections and the brain and the body like John did, he had an 8-millimeter video camera. And he videoed the entire event. And he hid the video in the ceiling above his desk. And he told everybody that, you know, I'm about to retire from the Navy. And uh, I've got offers from ABC, NBC, and CBS. Um, and he was going to use the video to uh, springboard himself into a, uh, a media position in his retirement from the Navy. He was very excited about that. So one afternoon, though, he was found dead in his office at, at the Bethesda Hospital next to John's office. And uh, a pistol was in one of his hands. Now, it, it was in one hand, but he was actually, he, he was right-handed, let's say, and the pistol was found in his left hand. That's strange right there. Secondly, the ladder, there was a ladder right next to his desk, and it reached up, if you were to climb it, to the exact spot where he kept that, uh, his secret cache of materials, which no one supposedly knew about. Uh, and the ladder was left there almost as a sign, you know, We've, we've taken care of this. And, of course, the videos were never found. And it was ruled a suicide. Of course, his wife said it's not a suicide. And his friend said he was excited about changing careers. So it didn't make any sense. But um, he was obviously taken out of the picture by some very powerful forces that did not want that video released because it showed a lot. And uh, so... My uh, stepfather, John Stringer, did take the JFK autopsy photos. And later, when the House Assassinations Committee met back in the, oh, the late 1970s, he was shown some of the photographs that he allegedly took. And he said, no, I didn't take those. He said, I have no idea who took them or why they're there. He said, I've never seen them before. So the autopsy was, in my opinion, obviously altered and anybody that tried to release true video or true photographs of the autopsy, that's what happened to them. So that's a little bit of interesting history there. It indeed is, and I appreciate you coming on the program tonight. Tell the audience about your podcast and where they can pick up a copy of the book if they're interested in going beyond the uh, Pentagon UFO report. Sure. Well, also, if you go to Amazon and just enter the Pentagon UFO report podcast, You'll come up with my podcast on Audible and the most recent episodes. I think the most recent episode was on this uh, Roswell deathbed confession, but there's a lot of them on there. And the book itself is also on Amazon. 
and it's beyond the Pentagon UFO report by Gerald Eastwood, and it's an e-book and a printed book, and it's available for immediate download or order. And I have written a few books under an, another pen name, Mir Taylor, Surviving the Deep State, a trilogy of books. And that led me more or less into uh, government intelligence analysis and into my premier book, Beyond the Pentagon UFO Report, all available on Amazon. Fantastic. Best to you, Gerald. Keep on keeping on. We appreciate you uh, coming on and talking UFOs with us. Thank you. Have a good evening to everyone. And uh, we look forward to uh, talking with the audience again next weekend from the Squatch Fest in Longview, Washington. And, of course, if you are not a subscriber of this show, we would encourage you to become a subscriber of this show for just $4 a month. And you get all the shows commercial-free, including the exclusive episodes, and you even get to hear about what we've got going on before everybody else knows about it. You really get to be in the know, and that's kind of cool. From the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, until next time, thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. I'm Jeremy Scott. Good night. Good night.